Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. I will now read for you the first lesson, which is from Genesis 41, verses 25 to 36. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, as are the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know about you, but I am very happy to look at 2020 in the rearview mirror. I don't know if you've ever watched Back to the Future, but there's this amazing line when Doc speaks to Marty McFly. And he says, Marty, whatever happens, don't go to 2020. And I have to tell you, I think the writers of that were very prescient in their understanding of what was going to happen in 2020. It has been a rough year. And so I'm hoping that 2021 will be a vast improvement over what we experienced in 2020. That being the case, I don't want to look backwards anymore. I want to look forwards. And I don't want to just look forward in terms of a few months or even a few years. I actually want to look forward a few decades because we are on the cusp of a technological revolution. Many people estimate, who are experts in this area, 
that over the next 20 years, we will experience one of the greatest periods of technological innovation since the 20th century. These next two decades are going to change our world in immense ways. So there's going to be great advances in artificial intelligence, great advances in biomedical technology. We're even going to go and colonize other planets. It's going to be a remarkable time. And I think we need to ask the question, how does the Christian faith fit in to this new future with all of this technological innovation that is coming our way? And so as a result of this, I am doing a sermon series that I've entitled Brave New World, which is based on the book by Aldous Huxley. Now, if you've never read Brave New World, it was written in 1932, and it's an amazingly prophetic novel. So it's set in the year 2540, 500 years from now, and it anticipates huge leaps forward in terms of reproductive technology, genetic technology, computing technology. And what I find to be so interesting about this particular story is that many of the things that Aldous Huxley anticipated would happen 500 years from now are going to be happening in the next 20 years. And so that's why we're focusing on this in terms of Brave New World. I also think this is really important because the Christian faith is not very well positioned to deal with these advances. The fact is, is that we are steeped in these very ancient traditions, ancient ways of thinking that do not set us up very well for talking about all of this. Now, this is not to say that the Christian faith has nothing to offer. It certainly does. In fact, I think that the Christian faith has a lot to offer in terms of theological, ethical, philosophical considerations of what this technology will mean to us in the future. And so each sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on one of these innovations. We're going to look at what's going to happen. How is it going to change our world? What does it mean for us? What are the ethics behind it? And then we're going to turn that around and we're going to ask, what does the Christian faith have to say about this innovation? What does our faith tell us to do in light of how this innovation is going to change our world? And what I think you will find is that far from being obsolete, the Christian faith actually has a very important place in this brave new world. Today, I want to begin with the genetic revolution. So if you were here in 2019, one of the sermons I preached during Lent was on a new technology called CRISPR. And CRISPR is this amazing way for scientists to be able to edit our genome, to literally splice our DNA. So CRISPR allows scientists to essentially accurately and successfully modify our genetic code of any type of organism. And right now, scientists are using this primarily to deal with genetic diseases. So they're trying to figure out, can they remove the genes that cause cystic fibrosis, sickle cell anemia, type 1 diabetes, Huntington's disease, and so forth. So they're looking at how can we change people's lives with this technology. And most people feel that this is a very good use of this technology. The second way this is being used right now is they're looking into cancer research with this technology. They want to be able to fight cancers, come up with better immunotherapy drugs. And a lot of people are looking forward to how this is really going to change the war on cancer. But even though scientists are using this technology right now as a means of being able to fight diseases, there are ways of using CRISPR that have nothing to do with disease. Theoretically speaking, CRISPR could be used to change the color of your eyes, the pigmentation of your skin, whether you're 5'5 or 6'9. 
the density of your muscle fiber, your body fat ratio, even your IQ. All of these things can be impacted with CRISPR. And so many people are very, very suspect of these changes, and understandably so. Because if a person can not only be disease-free, but we can engineer them to be agile, athletic, strong, beautiful, and intelligent, you can see how this can create a division within our world very quickly. So if these types of modifications become available to the public in general, and you can simply pay for them, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a situation where you're going to have the haves and the have-nots. You're going to have discrimination not based on sex or the color of your skin, but rather based on who can afford these genetic modifications and who cannot. I'd like to show you a short clip from a movie called Gattaca. Now, this movie actually was made in 1998, but it's an amazing film that talks about this technology. It was anticipating this technology was coming. And in the scene that you're going to watch, you're watching the main protagonist, who is a man who was born of natural means. He was not genetically modified. And his brother was actually born of those genetic modifications. And so in the scenes that you're watching, this is when they're young boys and they're growing up, and you can see the difference between the two of them. So let's watch. 300 million, 350 million, 400 million. Maybe it was a love of the planets. Maybe it was just my growing dislike for this one. But for as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going into space. Eight hundred fifty million. How many astronauts are there anyway? I bet I could be one if I wanted. Hey, don't eat that. It's Pluto. My goals didn't change a lot in the intervening years. Vincent. Much to my parents' dismay. Vincent. You have to be realistic. With a heart condition like yours. Mom, there's a chance there's nothing even wrong with my heart. One chance in a hundred. Well, I'll take it, all right? The trouble is they won't. Listen, for God's sake, you gotta understand something. The only way that you'll see the inside of a spaceship is if you were cleaning it. My father was right. It didn't matter how much I lied on my resume. My real resume was in my cells. Why should anybody invest all that money to train me when there are a thousand other applicants with a far cleaner profile? Of course, it's illegal to discriminate. Genoism, it's called. But no one takes the law seriously. If you refuse to disclose, they can always take a sample from a door handle or a handshake, even the saliva on your application form. If in doubt, a legal drug test can just as easily become an illegal peak at your future in the company. Now, if you haven't seen the whole movie of Gattaca, I would highly recommend it. It is a beautiful film, and it speaks directly to many of the negative implications behind this technology. But that's not where I want to spend our time today. 
I actually would like to talk about something that is often not spoken about with this technology, but is an entirely different area that it's going to impact, which is the fact that this technology is going to essentially remove suffering from our lives. Now, we've talked about that in terms of disease, but I want to go deeper into this. And in order to discuss this, I want to turn to our scripture reading from the book of Genesis. So in this story that you heard Judy read, we see that Joseph is with Pharaoh and he's interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Now, in the dream, he tells him that what it means is that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and that they should store up grain during the seven years of plenty if they want the population to be able to survive during the seven years of famine. Now, you've all heard me say in the past that famines were very, very common in the ancient world. And there were a lot of factors that had to align if you were going to have a successful harvest. The biggest factor was rain. So you needed to have the right amount of water. You didn't want to have too much because that could wash away your crops. Too little and they wouldn't grow enough. But let's assume that you're an ancient farmer and you're trying to grow your crops. And let's assume that you do get the right amount of rain. That in and of itself does not mean that you're going to be able to have a good harvest. Because as your plants grow, there might be bugs and insects and animals that eat your harvest. Locusts were a big problem in the ancient world, and so you had to worry about that. You also had to worry about the fact that your plants could get diseases. They could very easily catch something. Maybe there wasn't enough nutrients in the soil so they wouldn't reach their full potential. Or maybe one night the frost would come, it would destroy all of your crops. There were a lot of variables that could get in the way of preventing you from being able to enjoy a full harvest and it could cause your crops to fail or underproduce. Today, farmers have actually come up with all kinds of methodologies to overcome many of these problems. So, for example, today, as you can see from this photo, they have amazing ways of irrigating and giving water to their plants. They can give them just the right amount of water. They have chemicals and medicines that they can actually give to the plants to make sure that bugs don't eat them and they don't end up having diseases. They even have satellites that oversee these fields so that they know the exact humidity and temperature of every field they have. They can even zoom in on individual plants. It's remarkable. But perhaps the greatest leap forward in this technology has been the ability to genetically modify seeds of plants. These are known as GMOs, and it refers to genetically modified organisms. And these GMOs, they only happen in a couple of different plants right now. They've made some changes to, for instance, corn, to soybean, to cotton, and what they've done is they've actually inserted a protein into these plants so that it is poisonous to insects who try to eat them, and this prevents them from having to eat their harvest, which is wonderful because what that means is we don't have to get exposed to toxic pesticides, which aren't good for us or are not good for the environment. But that being said, these genetic modifications that are occurring within these, we don't entirely know what they're going to mean for us as people, as we eat them. Now, there are some people who have made the claim that these GMO products, they cause allergies or digestive issues. These links have not necessarily been confirmed. But what we do know is that scientists have to 
very, very specifically look at what they're creating with these GMOs in terms of plants because they need to understand how these plants could impact us in the future because if they make a change in one place, that positive innovation could actually have unforeseen consequences in the future. Now, for me personally, I really believe that GMO plants are an important part of being able to feed the world as we go into the future. And this actually brings up an area where we can reduce suffering from these genetic modifications. Because if you think about it, one of the most fundamental things we have as people is the need to eat. And if people can't get access to food, that's a big deal. And with these GMO seeds, we can actually allow things plants to be produced in areas where it's hard for them to grow. And this means we can truly feed the world. And that's very, very important for us as we go into the future because people shouldn't have to suffer if it is unnecessary. People shouldn't have to starve if it's unnecessary. So we talked about two different ways that we can reduce suffering, disease and food. But there's another way that we can reduce suffering in the world, and that actually comes in our gospel reading from Mark. So today, what we read is that Jesus, he goes into a synagogue and he heals a man who has a withered hand. Now, we don't entirely know what that means. We don't know what a withered hand is. But let's assume that it just means that it's not usable anymore, which in a society where manual labor was your primary way of surviving, puts you at a severe disadvantage. So maybe his hand was withered from being crushed during work. Maybe it was born that way. We just don't know. That's never told to us. What we are told, however, is that Jesus is able to heal his hand instantaneously. So literally one minute, his hand is unusable. The next minute, his hand is restored. Now this is the stuff that dreams are made of, is it not? Because, I mean, when you think about it, we as human beings... We are always getting injured, and those injuries take time for us to heal. So sometimes you can get injured, it takes a day. Sometimes it takes a week, months. Really bad injuries can take a year. Some injuries we get, we can never be healed from. And so what if we could enter into a world where we could be healed in the same way that this man was healed by Jesus? Literally instantaneous healing, so that you never had to suffer through it which may sound like a fairy tale, but it's actually not too far off. There are whole groups of scientists who have dedicated their lives to studying how humans age and how the human body heals. And what they're attempting to do is they're trying to either shorten some of those processes in terms of healing or elongate other ones like our lifespans. And they're ultimately trying to figure out if they can create a mechanism through which they can extend our lives so that we don't ever have to age anymore. Which I know that might sound impossible, right? That we would never age. But I want you to understand kind of where they're coming from. Because, for instance, we've known for a long time the natural life limits of human beings. And that is determined by our DNA. So, for example, if you look at our DNA, there are binders on the end of our DNA. They're known as telomeres, or DNA telomerase. So, if you look at our DNA, right, and you have these binders on the end that keep it together, as we age, those binders begin to shrink over time. And by the time those binders run out, that means that your DNA can no longer replicate, and that means that you will eventually die. Now, if you look at a child from the time they are born, and then you do the math on the rate 
of those telomeres shortening, what you find, and they've done this over and over again, is that the natural life limit of human beings is about 120 years. That's how long we are able to live, 120 years, based on that. Now, the truth is, is that none of us are really reaching our genetic potential. And there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen. So there's a lot of environmental reasons behind it. So for instance, you might have a bad diet that causes you to get heart disease. You might have other types of diseases. You might have genetic abnormalities. Maybe there's just toxins in your environment that don't allow you to live as long. So there's all kinds of reasons that are preventing us from hitting that genetic life limit. And that's why geneticists, such as Harvard's David Sinclair, he's researching various gene therapies that will extend our lives by repairing damaged cells and ultimately will allow us to get to a point where we will never age. So let me give you a sense of what David Sinclair is thinking of in the future. So he believes that once these gene therapies become refined, what will happen is not only will living past 100 become commonplace, but if we get to a certain age, let's say we get to the age of 30, we could live out the majority of our lives in our 30-year-old bodies, which would be pretty remarkable if we could do this. And in fact, he also believes that if we were to be able to refine this technology down, that we could also be healed instantaneously. That ultimately we could do what Jesus did with the man in the synagogue, like where they healed his hand. We could do that with these gene therapies and essentially never have to endure suffering. So these gene therapies that David Sinclair is working on, these are a literal fountain of youth and it could fundamentally change the way that human beings operate in the world. There would be no more cancer, no more disease, no more aches and pains from our bodies as we age because there is no such thing as aging. We could spend the whole of our lives, our mind and our body being in prime condition. Now, as amazing as all of this stuff is, all of this technology, there's one thing that they're not taking into account. And that is that human character is forged through adversity. This is something that they're not really thinking about. Suffering is the way we as human beings grow stronger. And I think you all probably have seen this in your life. I know I have. Which is that some of the strongest people I've ever met in my life are people who have gone through the greatest amount of suffering and obstacles. They've overcome all these hurdles and they've learned how to thrive as a result. Now, this makes sense because for hundreds of thousands of years, we as human beings, we lived on an earth that was very hostile towards us. We hadn't controlled all the things around us like we do today. And so as a result, our brains evolved to have to deal with a world where we would suffer as a result of our environment. And that's what forged our character. And this is why in Genesis chapter 3, you read that once Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they're sent out into the world. And the curse that they have to endure is the curse of having to toil and struggle for the whole of their lives. Adam and Eve didn't cause this. This section, this curse, is a reflection of what was already going on in the world. It was a reflection of our lives. And so this technology, as amazing as it is, if the goal is to remove suffering, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, 
What happens to human beings when you do remove suffering from our lives? How does that impact us when you take away the suffering that we're used to, when we no longer have hurdles or obstacles to overcome? And I think that the answer to that question is quite clear, which is that we actually do not cope very well. And we know this because of what's happened over the last 40 years. It's given us an indication of what occurs. So in the last 40 years, we have seen an increase in the comfort that we experience, particularly in industrialized nations. We experience a level of comfort right now that humans throughout the whole of history have never experienced before. So let me give you a couple of examples of this. So, for instance, we live and work in temperature-controlled environments all year round, where it's pretty much the same temperature all the time. We can eat whatever we want, whenever we want to eat it. When we want something, we can order it, and it will literally be delivered to our door the next day. When we want to watch entertainment, we can watch what we want to watch, when we want to watch it. The world is literally at our fingertips. Whatever we want, we can have. And what has happened to us as a result? People today, more than ever before, report feeling lost. They feel as though they have no discernible purpose in their lives. And that feeling is ubiquitous. It's everywhere with all kinds of different people. And this is why I think we see drug and alcohol addiction spiraling out of control. It's why we see suicides increasing. I think it's also why we see the impacts of mental illness really affecting so many people. And perhaps the worst thing out of all of this, in my opinion, is that our levels of compassion and empathy are declining rapidly because it is through suffering that we come to have compassion and empathy with other people. So what this tells us is that if we are going to remove physical suffering from our world, there may be some unintended consequences that we are not thinking about. Human needs, humans need something to overcome. Without adversity, our minds and our spirits are going to suffer. There is a balance that occurs in our lives. So the fact is that we as human beings, when we don't have physical suffering, it causes suffering within our minds and our spirits. We need these things as a balance in our lives. Because the fact is, is that they are all related, mind, body, spirit. You need all of these things in order to feel grounded. And when you remove the physical suffering, then all of a sudden we feel imbalanced. And so as we are heading into this brave new world where we will no longer have to endure suffering, I think the next big thing that we're going to have to overcome is ourselves. We're going to have to overcome the people who we are now in a world where we're used to suffering, but we don't have to suffer any longer. And this is where I think the gospel can really be a huge help to us as people. I think it's a place where we can really find some wisdom. So Jesus teaches us that literally the highest aspiration to which we can aspire as human beings is love. So we're talking about love of God, love of of neighbor, love of self. These three things are the things that Jesus asks us to aspire towards. Now, what's interesting about this 
is that very often we read this and we say, oh, well, that's a natural thing for us to do, right? I naturally love my family. I naturally love my spouse. But that's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about is a skill. It's something that you have to nurture and develop over time. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So to love God, right, we see that as natural. That's not natural. You can't see God. You can't know God. It takes work to talk and be with something that you can't physically see is not present there with you. The same way with your neighbor. You might say, oh, I love my neighbor. But that's a neighbor who you like. What if you don't like your neighbor? What if you disagree with your neighbor? What if your neighbor is a rude, hateful person? Are you going to love them then because you're supposed to love them? And what about loving yourself? We say, oh, yes, no, that's, that's easy. I do love myself. No, most people struggle to love themselves. And so it is something that you have to work at. If you want to love the way Jesus asks us to love, it is work and effort to put that at the forefront of your life so it's pushing your life forward. And this is where I think the gospel actually has a lot to offer us. Because the fact is that if we're going to remove physical suffering from our lives, if we're not going to be suffering any longer and our mind and spirit is going to be out of balance, then I think that Jesus' teachings on love can actually do a lot for us. Because when you have to work at love, that effort of having to love people who you don't naturally love, that is a way to keep our minds and our bodies strong in the midst of trying to deal with a world where we don't have to physically suffer anymore. And so I know that this is a completely different way of thinking about Christianity, but I think it could really be an amazing thing as we go forward into the future. It's something that we have to offer. So what if people saw the church as a place where they could find balance in their lives, where they could nurture their mind and spirit in order to make it equally as healthy as their body. I think that if they were to see the church through that lens, if they needed it in that way, then not only would we survive in this brave new world, but I actually think we would experience a renaissance because we would become an indispensable aspect of people's lives. Now, I know that this is so different from the way we usually think about church, right? Because church for the last 2,000 years has been a place where you find salvation, not in this life, but in the afterlife. But what I'm talking about here could really be something that could give a lot of meaning and purpose to people who truly need it in their lives. Because as we've said, once we remove the suffering, they feel purposeless. They feel like they have no meaning in their life in the same way. And this is something that we can offer them. Now, this future that we're talking about, it is a ways off in terms of much of the genetic revolution that we're talking about. But we can prepare for that right now in our church, because we can start to invest in the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. So in our church, when we say choose love, be the light, change the world, what I want you to think about when we say choose love is that this is something that is not natural for us. It's not something that happens automatically. It's something that we have to work at. If you are going to be the kind of Christian that really makes a difference in the world, you have to do the things that Jesus asks of you. You have to try to love in the way that he asks us to love, which means it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's hard to love at the level that he requires of us to be like Jesus. But I think that if we can invest in that type of love, then when that future really does come upon us, and it will before we know it, if we've invested in that kind of love and 
we really have worked at trying to build up that kind of love in our community, then when people come looking for that meaning and purpose in their lives, we're going to be ready. We'll be ready to welcome them into our doors, and we'll be ready to offer them that meaning and purpose that they need so desperately in their lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.